Good morning. We are continuing on in First Peter. I should like so much for you to turn to First Peter chapter one, beginning from verse three to nine. Uh, yeah. Well, I was just reading. My voice is loud enough. Uh, while while Matthew does this. Verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth, according to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven through faith. to reveal the last time. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through, though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you have not seen him now, you believe in him and are filled with an, an inexpressible, inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goals of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. It could be this thing, eh? It could be just this thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, Malcolm. We'll get there. Don't worry for the head. Yeah, yeah. It's okay now? Oh, great. Wonderful. Wonderful. If you remember rightly from last week, this letter was written uh, during the time of the outbreak of great persecution uh, of Christians in Rome. Now, this, this is really serious matter. Christians are dying. Christians are dying under Roman persecution. Christians who refused to participate in those Roman customs were put to death. And Christians were bold enough. They stood up for themselves. They stood up for God. And because of that, they stood out. And standing out like that, they were just lopped off from the surface of this earth, one after another. Um, you know, uh, they met with hostility. They met with Suspicion. They were criticized. They were mocked. Um, they were discriminated against, and many of them were brought to court on trumped-up charges against them. And perhaps one of the cruelest emperors was uh, Emperor Nero. You remember that? Uh, he was persecuting Christians. Christians were dipped in flammable tar and set like torches on fire to light up his the many parties that he held. Some of you have heard about that before. Uh, they were tied to chariots and dragged through the arena, um, you know, till they die. And uh, many of them were thrown into lions in the arena uh, as, as a sport for, for many there. And history tells us of the unbelievable, unspeakable torture that Christians have had to undergo. Now, this letter that you have just read in front of you, this letter was written in such a time of great persecution. And tradition has it that Peter himself, who wrote this letter, was crucified upside down because he thought he was not worthy to be crucified the same way as our Lord. So he asked to be crucified upside down. 
in the same place that Paul was beheaded, that was in Rome, and under the same emperor, Emperor Nero. So you got hints all over this letter, you got hints of suffering, hints of, of, of grief. And he talks about the fiery ordeal, chapter 4, verse 12. He talks about being slandered in the faith, chapter 3, verse 16. He talks about being insulted in the name of Christ, chapter 4, verse 14. He talks about suffering great grief, chapter 1, verse 6. So the underlying theme of this letter is suffering. And what a time to read a letter like that, because we go through suffering, every single one of us. So contrary to the popular belief, the Christian life is not a bed of roses. Contrary to Joel Austin, for example, this is not your best life now. Joel Austin unfortunately teaches that we are to be happy and successful and fulfilled here in this life and now. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure where he gets it from, but uh, this is not your best life now. Far from it. If you're not a Christian, then this is your best life now. Because the life after this, if you're not a Christian, will be infinitely, infinitely, infinitely worse than this one. And so all over this letter, and all over the book of the Bible, you get the call that we need to endure suffering. James says, consider it pure joy when you suffer. Not if you suffer, but when you suffer. And Paul says, it has been granted to you not only to believe, but to suffer. And uh, Paul says as well, uh, Paul says as elsewhere, uh, that the Lord has called us to suffer. But, but, but let us take it from Jesus Christ himself. Our Lord says, in this life, you will have trouble, persecution, rejection, difficulties, trials, temptations, pain, suffering, sorrow, sickness, even physical death. Now, this is what Jesus says. He says, in this life, you will have all of this. So, prosperity teachers are dangerous because... They teach what is contrary to the Bible. So Peter is here saying to us, if you're a Christian, you will suffer. But he takes us further. And I'm so glad that he's taking us further. He's saying, I'm going to give you a way out of your suffering. I'm going to teach you how you could overcome your suffering. And he has one word for us this morning. Hope. He says the way to overcome suffering is to keep on having that hope that is in Jesus. Because without hope, you capitulate. Without hope, sooner or later, you give up. But more than that, without hope, you die. You die, really. All of us live through great suffering because we have hope. The day you give up hope is the day you die. Victor Frankl, many of you have heard of that name if you are my age. He was a psychoanalyst, analyst. he was uh, a psychotherapist, and he was a survival of the Nazi death camp. Now, the death camp was such a demonic place, really. At any time, you could really be shot. You never knew you would live tomorrow at the death camp. 
if you were too weak to work, you were simply led out. You were simply led away to the gas chambers. So people at death camps suffered unbearable grief and, 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 and pain and, and anxiety. They never know that they will wake up to another day. And Franco, from his experience at death camp, discovered that different people responded differently to those horrendous suffering that they were subjected to. And Franco documents for us four ways that people responded in the death camp. Four groups of people. The first group were people who responded to those situations with brutality. They became very brutal. They became brutes. They were called the kapos, turncoat Jews who became petty tyrants. And uh, they were hoping to live for another day. So they would stomp on other people, they would step on other people, they would steal from other uh, their, their share of food for the day, uh, they would violate other people. So some people responded by becoming very brutal in the face of imminent death. That's the first group. The second group, that's the majority of those in the, in the death camp, simple majority are people who responded the second way. And that is this, they simply chose to become a number. They melt into the crowd. They avoided being beaten. And these groups, for, for some reason, they died very quickly. And it would happen quite quickly. One morning, a prisoner would simply refuse to get dressed, refuse to wake up, to go out to the ground for inspection. And no persuasion, no blow, no threat would have any effect. And they would just lay there staring blankly at the ceiling and there would be no light left in their eyes and there was no light because there was no hope one rather prominent man was convinced in, in a dream that he had that the war was going to end on March the 30th and so he became totally convinced that he was going to be freed on that day and as that day drew near and it became quite clear from news reports that a war was not going to end. On March the 29th, he suddenly started running a very high temperature. And on, the, and on March the 30th, that's the day he projected he had a dream that liberation will come, he lost consciousness. And every vital organ in his body began shutting down one after another. And on March the 31st, he died. So the first group suffered responded by becoming very brutal. The second group chose simply to become a number and melted into a crowd. And then Victor Frankl identified a third group. These third group of people survived by becoming very hopeful of something that they may receive upon liberation. So they would hang on to the hope of life to come they would, they would hang on to uh, they would hang on to uh, believing that there is something there for them. Uh, they hang on to the belief that there are loved ones waiting for them. They hang on to the belief that there is a job waiting for them that they have so loved to do. And the bulk of them survived by hanging on to those things. But 
even though many of them survived, really, many of them later on when they came out from the camp, even though they had their loved ones with them, even though they could go back to their works, uh, to their work, uh, many of them took their own lives. Those who belong this, to this third group. But it is the fourth group that Frankel found most fascinating. And there are only a few of them found in this group. And the way they responded was such that Frankel found to be very, very fascinating. And these were people who had the uncanny ability to maintain some kind of inner dignity and freedom inside them. Even though outside them it was a living hell, it was a living nightmare, they managed to maintain an inner kind of transcendent depth in their nature. When everything around them was going to pieces, they maintained their kindness, they maintained their honesty. They would give away pieces of their clothing uh, to other people to keep them warm. If they have a bar of soap, they would cut it up to pieces and give it away and hold on to a small piece for themselves. And they would offer those meager cup of watery soup that they had to other people. They would just take a sip and hand the rest of the cup over to others, and Dr. Frankel tells of a few starving and sickly prisoners going around offering meager pieces of bread to other people. They stayed kind, they stayed gentle, they rose above the evil that sought to destroy them. And Dr. Frankel discovered that many of these in the fourth group had a spiritual faith of some kind. They believed there was a divine plan for them. And for Frankel himself, even when the fear of Nazi was utmost in his heart, he knew there was nothing left to be afraid of except God. Now, they had a hope outside of themselves, and that caused them to survive. Now, it is this that Peter is asking us to hold on to. Peter is saying, there must be a hope outside yourself. It can't be found even in your wife. It can't even be found in your children. It has got to be something outside of your life, outside transcendent out there. If you have a hope for something grander, much more of greater grandeur than what you could ever have on this earth, you will survive. And so he's getting us to pin our hope on God, on the inheritance that is kept before us in heaven. I'm reminded of the old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. What are you pinning your hope on? A career, a promotion, a better job, your children, your money, your property. Just what are you pinning your hope on as you look at the world around you, as you look at your own mortality in the years to come? The experiment at that death camp should tell us that any human person, any earthly ambition, any finite object, any treasure of your heart, if you put your hope on any of those things, you will come up empty. 
even the people you most love would not be able in the end to save you. You know, one day, even the people you love most on this earth will be snatched away from you if you live long enough. I think a lot about it myself. If you live long enough, the day will come when even those who are dearest to you will be snatched away from you. You know, you have a family of seven, for example. You sit down every evening for a meal together. And every evening you sit down together as a family, a family of seven. The day will come when the six of them will stand over the grave of one of them that is being lowered down the grave. If I make my wife my ultimate hope, I'm only giving myself a key that will open the door to a very long and dark corridor which I will have to walk through one day. I must never make my wife my ultimate goal and ultimate love. Neither should she make me her ultimate hope. If you cherish whatever it is down here, you will come to be disappointed. You will become brutal. You will simply not get up in the morning. You choose to become a number. Or you will end up in despair. So from Frankel's studies, you must wake up to the reality that unless you find hope in something deeper than human love, something that is enduringly imperishable, you will not be able to survive this world. And right here, Peter says it out, out right away. He says, only in Christ is there an imperishable hope. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. There is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6 says, in this you rejoice. It's as if we rejoice in no other thing than this. Peter wants you to jump up with joy. And scholars, I've taken a good look at this passage this week. One Bible scholar after another tells us that this passage is a passage of joy. You look at how it begins. Blessed be the Lord, our God, our Father. Verse 3. According to His great mercies, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And then verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then verse 6 jumps in, in this you rejoice. But you know something? And this is quite sad take note of and that is this I believe God is shaking in his head in this belief that you and I would have none of this you say what surely I would love to have that imperishable hope undefiled that is kept in heaven for me I think, I think God is I hope I'm wrong and I pray that I'm wrong but I suspect God is shaking his head in disbelief that you should have no interest whatsoever in this treasure that is kept in heaven for you. Because honestly, tell me, how many of you wake up each morning just gladly rejoicing in this hope of life that is stored up in heaven for you, that is waiting for you, this crown of glory? How many of us live 
longing for the life after this life. I believe I'm right. I believe that we don't think too much about the life to come. Do you know the reason why? I believe I do. I believe I have a number of reasons. But for a start, let me say this. Let me help you understand this. We have all benefited from the advance of modern medicine. And God has allowed technology to you know, enable us to have made leaps and bounds in medical sciences. And the health care available in this earth today is unheard of. Way beyond the dreams of our forebears. There is virtually very few diseases we can't heal today. You know something? But with this, with this comes a great setback. And that is this. Because life is long, we have come to invest so much in this life and so much on this earth. So much that is right now present that we're not looking for the hope that is kept for us in heaven. In time past, everyone knew that life was nasty, short and brutish. In times past, no one needed to be convinced that life was short. Everyone knew that life was short. By the time you reached 20, you knew that life is coming to a close. Life is very, very short. It used to be that one-third of all women who gave birth died giving birth. One-third of all women. And the average family would have lost several children to death. Infant mortality was very high. And in the Middle Ages, death would come very suddenly. You so much as just catch a bug and you died. People died from all sorts of things. People died from diseases we don't no longer hear of. Smallpox, malaria, dysentery, tuberculosis, pleurisy, typhus, quincy, whatever that was. And so because of that, no one in those days needed to be convinced that life was short. Each morning they wake up, they thank the Lord for another day. And they would look to heaven. They would look to the reward that is kept in heaven for us. But there was a plus side for them. And that is this. They knew how to die. They looked to the life to come. They didn't hammer their sticks very deep on this earth. And because they knew how to die, they knew how to hope. And they were right. How, how did we ever get to miss this out? You know, James says in chapter 4, verse 4, You adulterous generation, did you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be friends of this world has made himself an enemy of God. Now, James is not saying that we should shun the world. James is not saying you should isolate yourself from the world. Jesus says, be salt and light. How could you be salt and light if you locked yourself up from the world? We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And so today, we have come to expect a long life on this earth. And because times are good, life is good, there's plenty of money in the bank. We invest ourselves so heavily on this life, we're not prepared to die. I always remember what my philosophy professor tells me. He would always say to me, Andrew, I love to go to heaven, but I'm, I'm, but I'm not dying to get there. 
get it right. He, I think he sounds the message for many of us. So the first reason why we don't look to heaven is because of this. We have invested too much on this earth. But there is a second reason why we don't hope for heaven, and that is this. We have not seen Jesus. You scratch your head and ask, what do you mean by that? Are you saying that I don't hope for heaven because I don't see Jesus and I'm right? I think I'm right. I like to think that I'm right. And again, God forbid that I am. But if perchance I am, let's listen to this. What's, what's happening here? What do you mean that we don't see Jesus? Let me just ask you a question here. If you're a Christian, and you may have been a Christian for what? I don't know, some 5, 10, 20 years. Why, is, why are you so, still so judgmental of other people around you? I know that I am. Why are we so nervous still? Why are we so anxious? Why are we so discontent? Why are we still on the prowl? Many of us are on the prowl. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're fearful. We're anxious. We can't handle rejection. We can't bear to see our friends doing better than us. Why are we like that? Just why are we like that? I think many of us don't understand the human heart. The human heart is a deep heaven that cannot be filled by anything at all in this world. There's a longing, there's a pining that simply will not go away. That's the reason why you're so nervous. That's the reason why you're so unhappy. That's the reason why you're so judgmental. You know, Jessica Lang, Jessica Lang, the actor, she's about one of the very few celebrities that would allow you to take a peep into her heart. And this is what she says. The main thing that I sensed back in my childhood was this inescapable yearning that I could never satisfy. Even now, she says, at times, I experience an inescapable loneliness and isolation. Oh God, how I remember that feeling though. Sitting on the front steps, on a summer night and hearing a lawnmower in a distance and a screen door slamming somewhere, it would actually make my heart ache. She expresses so well the deep ache that is in every human heart. But why do you suffer from this? Even as a Christian, why do you suffer from this? It is fundamentally because you can't get to point B from point A. What do I mean? Point A is, yes, Jesus loves me. Point B is emotionally, in a very gratifying way, bask in the love that Jesus has for you. I haven't got there myself. Let me confess it to you. I so, I so long to be in point B. Where I, could, where I could emotionally, in a gratifying manner, completely rest content that Jesus really, really loves me. And I can feel it and I can see it in his eyes. I can't. And this is why I'm saying many of us don't have the hope of heaven because we don't see Jesus. If you still don't get it, let me explain this to you from a story that I, of a movie that I watched recently. It's a Vietnamese movie. It came out at a time when Clinton, President Clinton, Bill Clinton, 
lifted the embargo of Americans going to Vietnam to produce films. So this was about the first film that was produced as soon as the embargo was lifted. It is a highly acclaimed movie. It won numerous awards at the Sundance uh, Film Festival. It's not a Hollywood film, not by a long shot. It's called Three Seasons. Now this Vietnamese man by the name of Hai, he's a trickshaw, he's a, he's a trishaw puller. You know what's a rickshaw? It's, it's someone who, who rides on, on, on a small vehicle and you just hop in, you pay for the fare, and he takes you where you want to go to, where you would like to go. And he's in love with Lan, a beautiful prostitute. And he would see her coming in and out of the hotel where rich people would pay big money to sleep with her. And he just longs to be with her. And so he would always volunteer to take her home. And she lives in a very dirty, ugly part of the city, the poorer part. And she would long to live in a motel or hotel. She, she likes the image of the high life, and that's what she's doing. So it's, she's impoverished, she's poor. But she says to herself, it's just for a while, it's just for a while. When I get enough money, I'll go out of it. But it's brutalizing her. It is brutalizing her. It's not, it's not helping her. She's trapped. But she doesn't know that she's trapped. And high, this trickshaw puller, enters a competition where he put those trickshaws into, into a race. And the winner gets 50 bucks. And he won the race. And he got $50. And he goes to Lan and he says to her, I've got this $50. That's what it would cost for me to spend a night with you. And she rolls her eyes, but because she loves the money, she says yes to him. And so they go into this hotel, and as soon as they go into the room, he gives to her this beautiful pink box. And she opens it, and there's this beautiful nightgown that is giving it to her. And he says to her, put it on. And she goes to the bathroom and she puts it on and she comes out and he's sitting on a chair and he says to her, lie, lie on this bed. He says, I, I don't want anything from you. He says to her, I just want to watch you. I want to watch you sleep. And uh, you so love to be here and I'm giving you this gift of being in this posh place. And he looks into her eyes and he looks into her eyes and he looks into her eyes and she sees him looking. And she sees him looking at her. And all of a sudden, in a window in time, she saw a look. She's never seen a man looking at her before. Every time she's been looked at, she's been looked at by men who wanted a slice of her. But for the first time, someone looks at her with a kind of a deep, compassionate, merciful, redemptive look. She's never seen that before. But she couldn't dwell too long on that because she was so sleepy. And she was so, so she falls asleep. But before that, he tells her that there'll be breakfast waiting for her in the morning. So she sleeps off. In the morning when she wakes, breakfast is served, but he's gone. He's gone. He's left. And she just was transformed the next morning. She could not go back to prostitution again. She just couldn't get herself to sleep with another man again. She's, she's just completely destroyed by her, so to speak. 
because she saw something she'd never seen before. And that transformed her completely. What was that? She saw him looking at her. But you know something? Even that would not have done anything for her except for this. She saw the look that she'd never seen before. She, she saw the way that he looks at her. What finally transformed her is she sees him in a way she's never seen him before. Of course, she's been seeing him for years. He'd been taking her on these rides. So she's been looking at him for so many times before. This is not the first time she sees him looking at her. But this is the first time she sees him looking at her in that way. Frozen in time, in a window, for the first time, she sees him seeing her. And she sees that not with her eyes. She sees that with her heart. I believe with all my heart that is the reason why you and I are fundamentally so unhappy and still on the prowl like Plan, still searching and getting angry very easily and getting very nervous how we're coming across. You know something? I believe many of you see Jesus in the morning in your half an hour quiet time and you observe that time with Jesus. I believe that you do see Jesus and you shouldn't stop doing that. You know something? I don't think, I don't believe that you see him seeing you. I believe that each morning as you spend time with your Bible open, you do see Jesus, but you don't see him seeing you. This is the gospel. I'm the living bread. He who eats of me will never thirst again. I'm the living water. He who drinks from me will never thirst again. Until people come to see the way Jesus sees them, the heart will always be hungry. The heart will always be empty. When you see him loving you, loving you so deeply, you can let go of everything. Nothing matters no more. People's opinion of you would not count so much. and You would be less nervous, really. And people's view of you would not matter so much. You know something? It's right there in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you loved him. I've lifted this up right from our text. Now why would Paul write this? These are Gentile Christians. These are non-Jews who lived in what is today northern Turkey of course they wouldn't have seen Jesus why would Peter write this Peter wants to tell us that even though you have physically seen Jesus it wouldn't do you any good you could name with your hands two hands the number of people who have seen Jesus up close and personal in real life did nothing for, for them this is why Jesus says seeing you have not seen so seeing Jesus physically is not everything. You could see, and John Piper is very strong on this one, on this point, you could see Jesus clearer than those who saw him in person. Because you have the four Gospels collaborating with one another, coming together, giving you a composite picture of Jesus that those people never saw. 
And Piper says you could see him clearer than the Syrophoenician woman. You could see him clearer than the centurion. You could see him clearer than, the, than Nicodemus, Nicodemus. In fact, you could see him clearer than the inner circle of his disciples. I'm going to suggest one thing. I'm going to make this sermon practical. This is just about the first week of winter. You have June, July, and August. You have really three months ahead of you for the whole of winter. And I want to propose one thing. I want to propose that for this winter, which is three months ahead of us, that you open your Bible to Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John every single morning and just read through the four Gospels praying just one prayer. Lord, help me to see the way that Jesus is looking at me. Would you do that, please? For the next three months, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with one prayer. Because the way Lan sees high looking at her was the beginning of redemption for her. She sees so much love in his eyes. If we can read through the gospel and see the love that Jesus has for us, so deep when spring comes I believe you'll be a little less anxious and that's September you'll be, you'll be a little less worried you'll be, be a little less angry a little less brash a little less unkind a little less discontent and I believe that when September comes you will be a little bit more kinder a little bit more pleasant a little bit more gentler a little bit more humbler. And I want to make this my own project for the next three months and I ask you to join with me. I've come to see that it is only in seeing that Jesus looks at you with deep, deep love for you. That is only the way to be healed of all our brokenness. And when you're healed of all your brokenness, you'll wake up in the morning looking for the hope that is kept in heaven for you. For the first time, you will be like those medieval people who live short lives, who long for the life to come. And Peter's prayer for us would have been realized. Shall we pray? Our Father, it has taken us so long, so very long, and for some of us who have been Christians for, for decades, it's still very long for us to come to that place where we come to see that you really love us so much that nothing on this earth will ever give us enough hope for you. Lord, we think of those who lived short lives in generations past, Many of them died in their 20s, many of them died in their 30s, but they died with that hope beating in their hearts for you. Lord, some of us are going to die in our 80s, but Father, forbid it that we should outlive our love for you. Yes, Father, forbid it that we should outlive our love for you. May we go to our deaths with our hearts throbbing for love for you. 
But that can't happen when we're too focused on our own comforts, our own um, affirmation, our, our own prominence. That's not going to happen. And the only way to stop us from looking for affirmation from other people, the only way to stop us from stop us from being nervous and anxious is when we see your love through your eyes. So Father, in the three months ahead of us, help us to get up in the morning, put the jug on, make a coffee, and help us to sit down with this one prayer. Lord, help us to understand how you are looking at us, how you are seeing us, and when we see those eyes seeing us with deep love, we will have no more anxiety. We will have no more fear. No more nervousness. No more discontent. We'll be kinder. We'll be gentler. We'll be humbler. We want to get there, Lord. I want to get there. So, Lord, give us resolve to do that together as a church for the next three months we ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.